I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Topcon Agriculture. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Farming in Brownsburg, Indiana, Mike Starkey no-tills 2,500 acres of wheat, corn, soybeans, and hay. He plants green into living covers as much as possible, finding that the practice has helped him manage the ever-narrowing Indiana planting window. He's also a fan of using annual ryegrass, along with various mixes, in his cover crop program. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, editor Frank Lesseter talks with Mike about his operation, and Mike shares his thoughts on what makes for a good no-till corn hybrid, why he's planting non-GMO corn but not soybeans, strategies for planting and terminating covers, how his soil water holding capacity has improved over the years, and much more. So we're with Mike Starkey this afternoon, and he farms at Brownsburg, Indiana, which is just north of Indianapolis, and he's got a pretty neat no-till operation. So, Mike, why don't you tell us a little history about the operation? I see it's a sixth-generation farm, right? Actually, Frank, it is a seventh-generation farm now. We added a new one to the uh, generation. So we have a seventh-generation farm, family farm, uh, just on the northwest side of Indianapolis, very urban area meaning that we have a lot of uh, traffic in the houses and things like that, but we deal with it. And with that, you know, there's positives and negatives. 2,500 acres of wheat, corn, soybeans, and some hay. And you got some partners? Jeff Starkey is my partner. Actually, my nephew and his son farms with us, and his son is the one that added the, the next generation. And then my son, Nick, helps out also. So you're at 2,500 acres. Were you larger than this at one time? Actually, we were about uh, 12 to 15 years ago. We just kind of gradually reduced our acres. And the reason being, Frank, is because the acres that were we were farming, the landlords actually didn't care how we were taking care of the ground. They just wanted a rent check. Uh, we felt that we would like to work with more of a, a landlord that appreciated how we were taking care of their, their farm. Also, in addition to that, we have concentrated putting our inputs on our own acreage, such as tiling and things like that. And we found out if we get a a better return on investment by concentrating on the better acres, the better landlords. So you got started with no-till with soybeans, right? And then you uh, tried some corn, but it didn't go so easy with corn at the time? Started with no-till soybeans, actually because we had a lot of acres back then. We were concerned about getting things done, so we, we started well with a, like a 750 no-till drill, running that instead of tilling the soil. And then tried to no-till corn about the mid-90s and did that for a couple of years and actually uh, failed at doing that. We just had a hard time keeping our yields like we should. And with that, we got back into 100% no-till kind of forced into financially, but we found out that with the support of our peers that do no-till, attending the National No-Till Conference, we we got some support and know-how and the mindset that we can make it work. That really helped out having the support. In addition to that, Frank, uh, we our hybrid that we have have changed so much, and therefore the hybrids are, are more 
forgiving, forgiving for, for getting into no-till. There's just some, some superior hybrids that we have out there, and, and along with the varieties of soybeans. Well, when you when you look at corn hybrids for years, people would say, "Well, all our hybrids will work with no-till. There's no problem; they all work." How do you pick a hybrid just for no-till? What do you want? Well, uh, fast emergence, mm-hmm. even emergence. It doesn't have to actually be for cold environments because we have found out in a no-till environment it's just as, as warm soil, if not better, uh, even warmer because of the active biological sure. activity in the soil that handles the cold situations. But we we also like consistent even emergence and the environment that we uh, have in our area that we look at and we like also uh, the hybrids that like to have better management such as spoon feeding nitrogen throughout the growing season instead mm-hmm. of just pre-planting a bunch of nitrogen up front and hope it you know works right so what row widths are you on and what how many rows on your planter we have a 16 row corn planter and we have a 32-row, uh, 15-inch soybean planter. Everything's on 40-foot centers. We actually have a, a sprayer that's 120 feet wide, so to keep that the control traffic uh, that we have with our tram lines. Also, uh, we uh, wide drop with our sprayer, which is on a we cut it down to 80 feet. And our corn heads an eight-row, and our uh, Draper soybean head and wheat platform is a 40-foot head. Okay. So you become a fan of wheel traffic and less compaction? Well, that's just one more added tool that we have in our toolbox. By Yes, we, we like to, to keep on the same wheel tracks and to keep surface compaction as low as possible. We don't have the compaction issues that, as we did in the past because of our cover crops that we have, such as sure. like annual ryegrass, and our soil structure has dramatically improved. But there's still a concern with the surface compaction, especially with our sprayer. Uh, our sprayer is probably the biggest compactor of the wheels that we have, and so therefore we try to keep everything just on a control traffic. You, I take it you have you have a self-propelled sprayer? Yeah, it's a uh, 4030R John Deere sprayer. Use it for spraying and also nitrogen application. It's probably the most used piece of equipment that we have. All right, so you got 20, you got 2,500 acres. How many acres a year will you put on your sprayer? <laughs> well, we uh, we actually we, we have 400 acres of wheat out this year, and the reason being is because of the commodity prices being so low. Sure. Uh, I'm looking at low inputs, and the wheat acres we actually cover a lot because we uh, manage that. We're you know putting fungicide on, the herbicide on, the nitrogen on, and so I think with our sprayer this year uh, we'll we'll cover 10,000 acres. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what kind of wheat yields are you shooting for with this intensive program? We actually work with a wheat consultant, follow his instructions because he, he scouts our fields and everything. But let's put it this way, as as many bushels as possible, but I would be disappointed if there's anything less than 90, and I'd be very happy if it was like 120. So you mentioned fertility like on corn. Walk us through the program, How what you're doing when you're putting it on. Well, we don't put a drop of nitrogen on until we plant. I'm a big believer in with these intense rain events that we have that why put on something if you don't know if it's going to be there at the end, and sure. especially with the dollars and cents that we're spending. So we have an inferral, uh, low salt fertilizer we put on, uh, inferral, uh, NPK, and then we have a sideband of a stabilized nitrogen product with sulfur. Every time we apply nitrogen, it's critical to apply sulfur. 
which is about 60 pounds of nitrogen on the planter. And then we come back at like a V6 on the Y drops with another 60 pounds of nitrogen and sulfur, thiosol. And then we come back right at VT with that last shot based on the year of rain events, soil samples, soil types, let's say, with a VRT application for a total average of about 165 to 180 pounds of total nitrogen per corn. Mm-hmm. And we got that narrowed down now where the amount of nitrogen per bushel is about 0.65 to 0.7 pounds per bushel. Well, that's great. Doing well. What do you do with soybeans? Any fertility? We actually have an inferral application with our soybean planter also. In addition to that, we, we have a micronutrient package. I think that's something that a lot of farmers are missing the boat on because these micronutrients are critical in balancing the soil. And we have that on corn and soybeans. But uh, the inferral application is more of a uh, potassium product. We still apply a minimum amount of uh, commercial dry fertilizer, but not near as what, let's say, my father put on in years past. Sure. I, I, I just feel that the, a lot of these applications of commercial dry fertilizer is, is well exceeded what's, what's needed out there. Again, we're watching the dollars and cents. And we take several samples still and every three years, and... And our soils are are not being depleted on that end. Uh, mm-hmm. I think critical for the balancing of the soils. So you mentioned, are you doing any variable rate fertilization? The variable rate, actually, on the commercial fertilizer, yes, absolutely on that, because we don't have our own spreader, dry fertilizer spreader. We we just hire that out, and they mm-hmm. they have the equipment to do that. A variable rate on the nitrogen. Uh, but not on the uh, the planters themselves. Uh, we could do that, but I just feel the soil types we have and how we uh, balance our soils and level things out, it, it's not needed as in years past. Sure. On your uh, micronutrient mix, are you basing this on soil tests or using the same one across the whole farm, or what are you doing? Based on soil tests, it's interesting. We, we buy a product that can make a recipe of what is needed per farm. Mm -hmm. And so we look at the soil test, see if there is a a needed additional amount of micronutrients, even P and K, and we can tell the uh, people that make the product, they just make a recipe as what's required for our farm, not for somebody else's farm. Right. You've got a lot of rented land. Do you treat this rented land pretty much the same way you treat your own for fertility, or you got long-term leases, or what? You know, it's interesting that the people that we rent ground from, they appreciate how their ground is farmed. We just have a gentleman's agreement every year. Mm-hmm. Look at the prices of our commodities at the end of the season, and if we have a great year in yield-wise, the prices are up. We pay them more. If not, uh, we just kind of sit down and, and share what every, what's a fair price. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But we do treat all of our rented ground fertility-wise the same. But on the ownership side of things, put more of an effort on the drainage side for uh, pattern tiling. Sure. On the rented ground, it's more of a tiling according to how much the landlord wants to pay. And also, not a pattern tile, but just kind of correct the bad areas. So what do you think on your own land tiling's been worth per acre to you? Tiling's expensive. I mean, <laughs> it's not cheap, but it is probably the biggest return of investment or the input cost than anything else. I'm talking about even for 
build up and fertilize and so on and so forth. Sure. And I'm looking at a return on investment to five to six years. Now, if this ground is, I, as I mentioned, is that we're in a very urban area, if this ground has potential for being sold, we will not pattern tile farm. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to transition to no-till, drainage is so critical, especially now. Uh, when I grew up, a half-inch rain was, you know, consistent rain. Now, now right. we have these three to four-inch to five-inch rains in a four-day period that they're just not uncommon anymore. And mm-hmm. so, therefore, the tiling is really, really, really critical now. And I hate it that when you tile a farm, the hardest part is starting all over again, meaning yeah. that to getting the, the tile lines leveled out and so on and so forth. We'll rejoin Frank and Mike in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. From planning to precision machine control to NORAC boom height control monitoring and mapping to data management, TopCon Agriculture offers a total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. To find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use, visit topconpositioning.com forward slash solutions to learn more about how Topcon Agriculture Application Solutions make agronomy work for you. Before we get back to the conversation, here is Frank Lesseter with a little known no-till farmer fact. Question came up about what about using anhydrous ammonia and nitrogen fertilizer with no-till? Does it hurt the earthworm populations? Well, Purdue University agronomist Eileen Kovitko says that while anhydrous ammonia kills worms that it comes in direct contact with, this likely has a very small impact on a field-scale basis. Anhydrous ammonia is typically injected in row middles, maybe every 30 inches, so this chemical will only kill a few worms found directly in the injection shank zone. Research at Purdue suggests less than 10% of the worms would come in contact with anhydrous ammonia. Years ago, an Ohio guy told me that he thinks the worms could hear the tractor coming with anhydrous ammonia application and got down deeper in the soil. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank Lesseter and Mike Starkey. Are you planting green or not planting green or both? Absolutely, planting green is the way to go for me. Now, I wouldn't say that for everybody because you've got to have more management and more uh, scouting. Mm-hmm. But, um, and again, now when it's time to plant, we, we just can't wait until the residue, or I mean the uh, cover crop breaks down and getting the better conditions that way. But planting green is really... Uh, so much more superior on getting things out of the ground a lot quicker because the planting window is so narrow now. Therefore, you know, you got to plant, you got to spray, and you know, it's just got to be all on top of it all at the same time. And so I just feel planting green, the soil is so um, active, and I want that cover crop to grow as long as possible. And it just wakes up the soil. And with the uh, biological activity in the soil, especially on corn, it makes the corn just pop out of the ground immediately. So, so when's the ideal planting date for you for corn? <laughs> Whenever it's dry enough to plant. And, you know, this year <laughs> it was it was June, but uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to get everything planted by the, you know the tenth of May if we could, mm-hmm. and it'd be great if we can start on the twenty fifth of April. But 
we planted our whole corn crop, Frank, this year in four days. Uh, we started June 1st and got done like June 5th. And that's when that planter was going practically 24-7. How many acres did you have? Uh, right at 1,000 acres of corn. Okay, and you got the beans planted almost as quickly, huh? It was just the same time. And uh, last year, I think we had right at 400 acres of wheat also. So it was good we had that wheat to kind of offset the corn acres that we had. But, but yeah, these these planting windows are so narrow that, you know, when it's time to plant, you got to get it done. And yeah. you can't wait to, you know, for that uh, cover crop to die down. To, but it's harder to plant in a, a cover crop that's dying than it is to plant in the wheat. So on these four days in June, did you plant both corn and beans in those four days or four days for Correct. each? No, uh, we, we, both planters are running. So, so you got 2,000 acres in in four days? Uh, about 21 and a half, yep. Wow. Yep. I even pulled the air seeder out that we use strictly for cover crop and wheat uh, mm -hmm. to, to get some soybeans planted. So we did that on like, I don't know, 300, 400 acres also. Wow. So annual ryegrass, your main cover crop? That's my cover crop of choice. Uh, that's the cover crop I've been using the longest. Now we have other species, and that's something we're really getting a lot of good benefit from. When you when you have a mix of cover crops, it just seems like one species feeds off the other one. Right. And by having a mix, they grow and give you the benefit that one other one does not. Yeah, and if you put them out there by themselves, uh, they just don't grow as well. But if you put them in a mix, uh, they they do. A, I don't don't ask me how, but they just feed off each other. So, how many species might you have in the normal mix? In the fall, we like to have a five-way mix after soybeans. Now this mm -hmm. year, since harvest was late, we flew on everything on standing beans and standing corn. Okay. Which was which was critical because we we didn't start soybean harvest till last of September. Right. But after soybeans going in the corn, a five way mix after wheat. That's why I like having wheat. Also, uh, you get so many more species that you get a huge benefit from, and that could be up to a nine way mix. Right. I had somebody tell me late. I asked him why they were putting sunflowers in their mix, and he said, "Well, there's some benefits for it, but the real benefit is the neighbors see it growing." Oh. <laughs> Neighbors love it, and and the people like to take their pictures in there for those fields yeah, too. So. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so when did you finish harvest this year? About the fifth of November, around there. Right. So that was both that that wrapped up your corn. You'd wrapped up your soybeans earlier than that. Actually, we did not start corn harvest until the finish. We finished soybeans because we knew that the window was closing in pretty quick for getting soybeans finished. So sure, um, we finished soybeans before we even started corn. Mm-hmm. In a normal year, would you fly on cover crops or would you try to do it all with the air seeders? Every year we fly on our standing corn, some type of a mix. And this year was, uh, since it was late, since we didn't get the late to get the corn off, we flew on uh, cereal rye. And actually, I flew some radishes on with it because of the DSP program that we're involved with. It calls for a, a mix. So in a normal year, when would you start corn harvest? Uh, about the 15th of October. Okay, and uh, then one at the latest. At okay. the latest. And when would you aerial fly on a cover crop in a normal year into that corn? Uh, by oh, always by Labor Day. Okay. Yeah, we always shoot by Labor Day, and you always look for a rain event. You know, right. weather, and if there's going to be a rain event, it might be a little bit earlier than that. Right. 
So you're going to have a cover crop growth of four weeks or so, five weeks before you start cutting corn. Huh? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's got germinated at least. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, my biggest thing for cover crops, in my opinion, now, we're, we're, our ground is flat. Sure, we have erosion for major rain events here and there, but we don't have any, that many slopes. So, therefore, I like to benefit more in the spring than I do in the in the fall for the cover crust because, it, like I said, it wakes up the soil. It gets it active. It's so nice to plant into green, uh, how mellow it is. And, and with that, I, I just feel the, uh, the benefit of the spring growth is more than a fall growth for me. This year, when you planted corn and soybeans, June 1 to June 4th, mm -hmm. when did you kill the cover crop? I would say, Frank, well, let's put it this way, before it emerged. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I was right there behind the planter, you know, both planters spraying mm -hmm. uh, before they emerged. So, right. You know, by, I don't know, by the 8th of June or something like that. I went back and looked at an article we'd done earlier on you, on you had some real good tips in a normal year for uh, killing annual ryegrass. And you were talking about um, you shouldn't spray until you've mowed your lawn twice. That's correct. Yep. Explain that. <laughs> well, annual ryegrass has to be actively growing, and I mean actively growing, before you, you spray it. Because it's good to have experiences, but sometimes those experiences kind of kick you. You got to be patient. And this is one of those years you had to be patient because right. the growth of the cover crop was just not there. So annual ryegrass is one that if you don't terminate it the first time, it's a heck of a lot harder to kill it the second time around because you just made it mad. Yeah. So I, I just feel it's got to be actively growing. And so the good rule of thumb is just don't go out there until you mow your yard twice. That means it's actively growing. Yeah. So you want some nights that are above 50 degrees, I would take it. I would say two to three consistent nights above 50 degrees at nighttime. Uh, don't go out there and spray before 10 o'clock and shut it down at four to five o'clock. Don't, don't even think about spraying after then. Uh, well, ex explain, explain that. Why? The annual ryegrass is just like you and I, we're, we're waking up to the sun and actively being busy in the daytime. And then we get tired at the end of the day, and at the end of the day, we want to shut her down. So, yeah. uh, put her feet up. So, well, that's kind of the way annual ryegrass works. So, it needs to be actively growing. And uh, I've done that in the past. We're uh, right to the line. Oh, I just got to finish one more spray, and I'm done with this field. And I go out there, let's say, 536 o'clock and spray it, and it didn't terminate it. So, <laughs> just one of those rules that you got to follow. And a big rule is you got to condition your water, and I use citric acid, especially if you use Roundup. Roundup, uh, you got to bring the pH of that water down to make Roundup work into annual ryegrass. So right, that's critical. So, what are you? What herbicides would you be using to kill your cover crop? Well, you know, this year I did not use any Roundup. Hundred percent I used was Gramoxin. Gramoxin, the price has gone down considerably very competitive with Roundup, and the you see results pretty quick with Gramoxin. Now, people are concerned about the uh, the handling of, of Gramoxin, but I'm telling you, if you if you just follow the label, 
put a mask on. We got the long gloves and, and cover my head and everything else. Uh, it's nice to have the self-contained shuttles that you have, and, and you'll, you'll be fine. But these stories about Roundup going through the plant, exuding out through the soil, that's kind of bothered me. And mm-hmm. I've used a lot of Roundup in the past. Now, I don't use Roundup, 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 Roundup all the time, but I, I, I use Roundup to cover, kill my cover crop in the past, and I just kind of like the diversity, and I switched to Gramox and actually starting last year. Yeah. Well, you need some different modes of action. Yep. You're in a watershed area where the some of the university scientists have done quite a bit of work on your farm in that area. Can you tell our listeners what they've been doing and what you've learned from that? On my farm, there's a stream. It's called the School Branch. It's the third largest tributary that goes in the Eagle Creek Reservoir, which is the source of drinking water for Indianapolis. Okay. That reservoir 12 years ago had some algae bloom and they were having issues with uh, phosphorus in their water. So the water company hired a person from the local universities to go out there and find those farmers that are polluting their water and get it fixed. And he came knocking on my door. And with that, we kind of built this relationship where, hey, I want to make sure my phosphorus stays on the farm and and, uh, let's look into some other things. That's fine. Well, make a long story short, the past five years, we have a program through NRCS called the Edge of Field Monitoring. Sure. And it's a huge partnership that there's USGS is involved, NRCS, State Department of Ag, or local SWCD, Indianapolis Water, or Citizen Water is called now. Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis, Indiana University out of Bloomington. We have several expensive monitoring devices on our farm, which monitors the water before it enters my farm, in stream, and after it exits my farm. Also, mm-hmm. it monitors the tile outlets, surface water, groundwater. We'll have wells out there to prove that the type of farming that I do is uh, good for the watershed. And what's a huge result out of this is that the water coming out of my field is, is cleaner than what's in stream. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's what they're trying to promote and educate others about. And these devices uh, actually are monitoring the water on a 24-7 basis. Very expensive. So in case, you know, you can't catch it on a Christmas day of a huge rain event, well, they have the, the equipment that actually monitors that right. for nitrate and phosphorus and some uh, all these other nutrients. So it's a big project. It's a good project. We're also comparing application of tri-state recommendations of fertilizer compared to what I put on and showing extensive soil tests, you know, the yield comparisons, uh, tissue sampling, so on and so forth, showing that these tri-state recommendations from Purdue and Ohio State, Michigan State, are not needed based on my farm. Right. Now, in a commercial uh, in a tillage environment, they probably need that because of the tillage and what they've been doing to the soil, they need some of that commercial fertilizer. But what I am replenishing out of my soil based on the cover crops and the no-till and, and what I'm recovering out of the soil, I don't need it. Mm-hmm. Any, well, I shouldn't say any, but not near as much what it used to be these recommendations are. So that's kind of what we're at. It's been kind of a fun project. It's a great partnership. And EPA's been here, been just, 
thrilled about it. Now the current EPA, they can care less. They they just soon get rid of everything. But the uh, the old EPA, right? They they're all over this. So hopefully uh, we can get some good data out there that show that you know uh, we don't need to uh, salt the earth like what a lot of these universities are recommending. Right. We had one of these researchers that worked on this project talk on our NOTO conference in Indianapolis five or six years ago. And I thought I remember him talking. They had a lot of really great information. Have you made any changes in your program based on what you've learned here, or you just realized you were doing a darn good job to start with? Well, uh, the changes we did make since then uh, was the spoon feeding of nitrogen. Okay. Uh, that data was showing when we were side dressing our nitrogen with our toolbar, uh, and if we had a, a big rain event, we lost some of that nitrogen down the stream. Mm -hmm. But by changing our management application with these wide drops, they uh, they are not seeing any uh, nitrogen from the field. So that that was a big change that we made uh, with the application of nitrogen. Corn loves nitrogen, and we still have to apply it. But if we can change our way of application of it and keep it where it's needed, not going down the stream or down the Mississippi or Gulf of Mexico, uh, why waste our money applying it, you know, if it's not even going to stay on the farm? Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. If you've been enjoying all the advice and ideas shared by the No-Till authorities featured in this series, then join us in St. Louis from January 7th through the 10th for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference. We've lined up more than 30 top-notch no-tillers, agronomists, researchers, and other no-till experts to deliver innovative ideas that can help you get the most out of your no-till farming system. Share ideas and get solutions to your toughest no-till challenges during 13 thought-provoking general sessions, 23 expert-led no-till classrooms, 76 farmer-to-farmer -farmer roundtable discussions, and two exclusive workshops on soil biology and raising hemp as a specialty crop. The National No-Tillage Conference is 100% money-back guaranteed to bring all of the resources, information, and networking opportunities you need to help your no-till operation reach new heights in 2020. Listeners of this podcast can receive a $20 registration discount by visiting notillfarmer.com forward slash NNTC and entering code PODCAST20 at checkout. Explain how these Y drops are use, are using and how, where where they are on your boom, how you're using them, etc. Well, like I mentioned, we have a 4030R sprayer. It's a 120 foot boom, but I fold in the outside wing. Sure. And it makes it an 80 foot application because you cannot put these on a 125 foot boom because they won't fold up. They hang down. A, I'm sure everybody knows what a Y drop is and I only have an 825-gallon tank. I do have a front fill, which I don't have to fold up every time I fill. Yeah. So if you think about it, you know, I'm always I'm I'm applying 20 gallon per acre. So every 40 acres, I'm filling up. Mm -hmm. But it's so fast. I mean, I'm going across the field 10 miles per hour, and I am only using my narrow sprayer tires. I'm using the same tram lines. I'm not slaughtering the corn on the end rows like I used to with my applicator. And, Pulling a tank or whatever I was with a tractor, or my my in rows are are staying you know consistently high just like the field because I'm not 
you know, tearing up the corn like I used to. No. And it gives me the benefit I can go out there when the corn's really tall. I don't have to get it, you know, where I'll be breaking off corn with a tractor or an applicator. And some years you've come back even later than V6 or V9 and made some applications, right? VT is critical, Frank. I mean, right before tassel or even the tassel, I've been in tassel. Mm-hmm. It's, these hybrids love nitrogen throughout the whole growing season. And I'm talking on the back end. When my dad was farming, there was, those hybrids back then loved a lot of nitrogen on the front end. They had those short, fixed-ear hybrids. Now we have these racehorse hybrids, more management. But again, they, they love the nitrogen a lot on the back end. And that's where the cover crop helps out, too, with the we're getting the release of nitrogen there and, and the, from the cover crops, let's say, in August. Sure. The corn stays greener longer that way. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get an extra boost of yield from the decaying cover crop even in August. That's correct. And I've done trials with one application of, well, I do it all the time, uh, one application of uh, the wide drops of V6 and compared to the split applications. And, again, that late application is really a big boost. Right. So um, you're, you're in the soil health, you're in the roots, and um, tell, tell me about how roots have changed going from conventional tillage to no tillage. Well, the, the soil obviously changed, but, but the, back in the days of conventional till, the roots of the corn or even soybeans would, would pancake out. Sure. And that's where they reached out to the, uh, the side dress application of nitrogen you know, in the bulk. But it wasn't, you know, if, if we had a dry year, my word, I mean, it's just going down so far for moisture, and that was it. But now the roots of, let's say, for example, a corn, they don't pancake out. They they kind of go straight down, and that's the reason I can use the wide drops and get big benefits from because the wide drops put the nitrogen right next to the corn plant instead of the bulk. And, and you think about it, you know, if I put that nitrogen into bulk, it, it probably would not be used by that corn plant as they are now. Mm-hmm. So that's an, a big plus of, of the high nitrogen with the wide drops because I'm putting where the roots are going straight down instead of pancaking out. Right. I had a, a 2012. I don't know about you, Frank, but we had a drought here. It was interesting. I I dug a soil pit on a Friday with my backhoe just to see how far these roots were going down. And they were going down through the glacier till because uh, of my cover crop. The annual ryegrass just blow through that. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking five five feet, six feet deep. And I go back here on a Sunday to show my wife. And I look in the bottom of that pit, and there's water in the bottom of that pit. Mm-hmm. And it just showed me and proved to me that the soil is acting like a sponge now because of the structure of it. And so that water came from the rain that we got two months earlier mm-hmm. and, and absorbed that. And those roots were going down there. So uh, in a, a conventional tiller environment, that, there's just no way that would happen. Right. So it was a, just a huge benefit. And another plus from that is that I had a landlord that was wanting me to rent his ground, but he told me, he said, I still think you need to tear that ground up. <laughs> And so I, I said, you know what, why don't you just come down here and I want to show you something. And also bring your wife, make sure <laughs> she comes. And when he looked at that bottom of that pit with his wife, and his wife looked at, 
him and said, you know what, he's going to be farming our ground. That's because of this. <laughs> so if you want a new landlord and want to prove thing, dig a pit and bring the wife. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Well, speaking of your wife, uh, you and Nick and uh, your wife were up here a year or so ago. We took you to a Cubs game. You're both really interested in the school thing. And then you got a school that's nearby the farm, and you do a lot of things with school kids too, don't you? We love to have kids out. Anytime uh, there's actually a, a private Catholic school right across the road from our farm, and uh, kind of fun to go in the classroom and show them a little demonstration and ask them then, hey, what do you what do you think that airplane's doing when it's flying around in my field out there? You know, right. And the first thing out of their mouth is, uh, well, it's dropping chemicals, pesticides, whatever, all this stuff. Right. Like here. And I said, you know, I'm I'm flying that in September or early September, late August. Why would I be doing that? I said, what if I told you I would be dropping grass seed out of there? Right. And their mouth's like, what are you talking about? So it's kind of fun to tell them, hey, this is what I'm dropping out. And I show them my seed. Yeah. And they go home and tell their parents. And after they tell their parents, the parents actually call me up or text me and say, I didn't know that's what you were doing. Hey, that's great. Right. So you, you got to educate others about it. Right. So what are you doing in the precision area? Uh, GPS, auto steer, whatever. Well, if I if I didn't have auto steer, I wouldn't be able to plan all night long, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's nice having auto steer. It's it's interesting to see that combine yield monitor and comparing hybrids. Mm-hmm. And this year it was really interesting. I was compared a non-GMO hybrid with a GMO hybrid, eight rows on GMO, eight rows with a planter uh, non-GMO. Sure. And the uh, the non-GMO same hybrid was seven bushel better than the GMO hybrid. Wow. And that non-GMO hybrid was $40, $45 a unit less per, per unit to purchase than the GMO mm-hmm. hybrid. And all it was is a double pro compared to a non-GMO. Now, right. granted, I didn't have any corn borer this year, fortunately. Sure. And I don't never spray Roundup in corn. So it just kind of shows you, you know, some information that you can reduce your inputs or watch your inputs or select hybrids, you know, with the the type of data you can collect. And then also it's nice to see the benefits of the drainage that you put on or what's needed. And the comparison of the the nitrogen application when, you know, like I told you earlier, putting one shot on compared to split applying. That's the kind of data that I use with my GPS, and, and it's it's dead on. So on this non-GMO versus GMO comparison, first off, you, you save money on the cost, but why was it seven bushel better on the same hybrid? Well, you tell me, Frank. I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but apparently the stacked information that they put into that hybrid uh, just made the yield go down. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen on every hybrid. Sure, right, right. But it sure did on that one. So, therefore, guess what? I'm not going to buy that GMO hybrid next year. I'll just buy the non-GMO <laughs> number. So, right. not on all of them, but, you know, it just depends. Right. Now, I am transitioning a lot of non-GMO corn. I mean, this year it'll be 80% at least. Last year was about 50%. Mm-hmm. But I'm scouting better. Well, I should say I'm not. I My local, local toll-up has a scouting program from uh, some pr- 
from Purdue interns that come out and scout and sure. really do a great job. And and they uh, they actually you know it's nice to have the, their GPS handheld and mark areas of different insects and weeds or whatever. And and that data is sent to to me directly. And it's, it's for the price of it, you can't beat it. Right. But right. with the non-GMOs, therefore, I'm having these interns scout more in case. I do have a corn borer problem. I can get right out there with my sprayer and take care of it right then. Right. So, but I'm, but look at the the money I'm saving and purchase, you know, with these commodity prices we have, we got to watch the dollars we spend. You know, right. And any, any dollar we can save, I'm, I'm going to try to make a good effort to, to save money on. Right. So your non-GMO corn, how are you marketing it and what kind of a premium are you getting for it? Huh. I wish I had a premium. Uh, that's un- <laughs> that's the unfortunate part. I, there's a small amount of local elevators buying from us, um, mm-hmm. but not, you know, very much. But right. uh, I hope in the future, you know, that that we will get more of a premium. Now, soybeans, I'm still GMO because if you went non-GMO for the premium that they offer, it just doesn't intrigue me because. We like to deliver our of our soybeans right out of the field. I have, most, mm-hmm. have mostly sold. I don't like handling twice. And also, uh, I want to know when my money's coming instead of just waiting for them to call me to, to right. make the delivery. Right. Especially right. not in the middle of the snowstorm in the middle of the winter. So. Right. Right. I had another question I was going to ask you, and we talked a little bit on the hybrids, but with based on the kind of year 2019 was, what are you going to do ne- different next year? Well, actually, uh, I'm still watching my dollars and cents. That's a big part of it. I had 400 acres of wheat I put out this fall again. I have one farm that I would like to put back in corn, but hmm, I'm thinking if the price of corn doesn't go up anymore, I'll just rotate it back to soybeans. But a big part of it is that we are actually in the right now in the process of tiling uh, about 250 acres, pattern tiling, and uh, it's one of those inputs that I had some money back for and and it's it's going to be it's time for it it to get done and so that's the biggest change that we're making again what I hate about it is that we have to start all over again on on the the 250 acres that were pattern town but I have just seen especially this year that oh my gosh if you don't have drainage you're not going to have a crop right so uh, that's that's a big the biggest change for me well, you and Nick have been many of our no-till conferences. Jeff's been to a couple, but we're looking forward to seeing you in St. Louis this well, coming year. all four year. of us will be there. Uh, Nick and all Jeff right. and Zach and I will be there. And uh, I like St. Louis. I mean, it's fun. I, I like hanging out with everybody. Uh, looks like you're going to have another great program. Yeah. I it's a can't-miss so. event for me. We'll be there looking forward to it, Frank. Okay. All right. Hey, thanks for doing this, and have a great day. Okay, Frank. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. The question came up is how to get started with no-till. And my advice is to start on a small acreage, maybe 20 acres, 40 acres, maybe 50 acres, and see how it works. But I've received several phone calls over the years that made me panic because there were a number of people going hog in no-till. Back in 1973, shortly after we started the magazine, 
I fielded a phone call from an Illinois farmer who was looking for planter attachment recommendations, and he was going total no-till that year with 1,500 acres of corn and soybeans, and he had never planted an acre of no-till before in his life. That's not the way I think he ought to get started in no-till. It's pretty scary. I tried to talk him out of it, but he didn't listen, and he made it work. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Mike Starkey for today's No-Till Insights. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri, from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillfarmer.com forward slash NNTC to register. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.